Today on Sagittarian Matters, parenting while being a productive artist. With special guests, Lucy Nisley and Alec Longstreth. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Hello from the floor of a closet in San Francisco. I'm here teaching at California College of the Arts, and I want you to know my book, Fetch, How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home, comes out this week. It drops July 18th. You can find me at Skylight Books in Los Angeles, July 18th, California College of the Arts, San Francisco campus, July 21st, Powell's City of Books in Portland, Oregon, July 25th, and Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle, July 29th. Come find me. Come meet producer Ponyo. Shake her hand. Get a Don't Pet Me bandana while supplies last. And I hope you enjoy the book. As always, I want to say if you like the podcast, please tip producer Chris. He's all I've got. You can tip producer Chris by sending a bunch of money to hornetleg at gmail.com via PayPal. We appreciate it. And if you want to support me and see some art and get some free prints, go to patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. Thank you. On with the show. Lucy Nisley is a very productive cartoonist. She's the author of the books French Milk, Relish, Displacement, Age of License, and Something New, Tales from a Makeshift Bride. You can find her at lucynisley.com or find her great baby sketchbook on Instagram. Now please enjoy my talk with Lucy Nisley. Lucy Nisley, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thank you so much, Nicole. Uh, what is your sign? I forgot to ask. Capricorn. I'm uh, a Capricorn. Oh, well, that everything makes sense now. I'm sure. <laughs> everything, because, you know, I am... Those listeners are tired of me saying I have a Capricorn moon and rising, so I oh. feel that that makes me a hardworking individual. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we are pretty. It's, it's pretty accurate uh, about Capricorns that we're we're pretty tough on ourselves in that department. <laughs> Somebody just asked me, they're like, "What do you do for fun?" And I was like, "I don't really do that." Like the, <laughs> I was like, "Well, because I mean, you know, like I work all the time, but that's fun." I know it's hilarious because at the end of the day like we'll get the baby down and my husband will go and be like oh I just got to decompress and play some video games and I'm like oh I can't wait to get into my studio and draw like I've been doing all day (laughs) I know that's the thing it's like our job you know sometimes it feels like torture but some but it's fun for me or it's scratching an itch that I have all the time compulsive torture it's like masochism yeah (laughs) it's like oh I get to go like pick at my hangnails or something yeah exactly <laughs> um, will you tell my listeners who are you uh well my name is lucy i'm a uh, comic book author and artist i've written i'm working on my sixth book right now uh sixth graphic novel i should say and uh my books are about sort of growing up and uh my experiences and travel and uh, I like to think that the work that I 
I'm most fascinated by is transitional work. So uh, periods of my life that take me from child to adult or from single to partnered or in the case of my most recent book that I am working on now, from pre-parent to parent. Yes. Well, I was... I always think about you. One of the words that pops in my head is prolific. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And productive. Yeah. yeah I'm, uh, I've been working on my speed over the last few years, and it's, uh, it's, got, it's gotten pretty good. Well, I want to ask, because I, I think, how old are you? Are you in your early 30s? Yes, I'm 32. And you've made probably, you've published probably 2,000 pages of comics? It's probably about right, yeah. Give or take. Um, yeah. Which is a lot in a short amount of time. Just, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, pre let's go pre baby first. Okay. Um, what was your schedule like, or what is your drawing practice like? Um, well, it's you know I feel like a lot of cartoonists are constantly figuring out their practice, and um, for me, my first book, French Milk, was a travelogue, so that involved you know, a lot of working on the go and sort of working in little notebooks and, uh, you know, pushing myself to draw as quickly and uh, very loose, loosely as possible to get the story down. And as I've grown and developed my practice, it's gotten a lot more um, sort of uh, serious and focused. And uh, I still do travelogues from time to time. I have two other published travelogues besides French Milk, my first but um, for the graphic novels that I work on now, I script and thumbnail and do the layout and the whole nine yards, soup to nuts. And I work a pretty regular schedule. Before I had my baby, it was a pretty regular nine to five schedule, Monday through Friday. And uh, I, I'm very protective of my weekends because otherwise my hand would fall off. <laughs> and I fit in comic book convention and signings sort of here and there where I can. Yeah. And do you end up, or pre-baby, did you end up lining your schedule up kind of with how your partner's schedule is? So you both are like, we're going to work. Goodbye. <laughs> but you go into a room and he yes. leaves the house? Yeah. It tends to be a healthy schedule. I mean, I, I still think that 9 to 5 Monday through Friday is like too much time to be working in, indoors. Uh, but you know, if you really love it, which I do, then okay, it makes a little bit more sense. But before I was with my husband and I was single and living alone, I had no, no, nothing to curtail the work. And I would stay up until two in the morning and I would, you know, work through the night and I would go crazy on these deadlines. And it burned me out a lot. I, I went, frequently went through periods of feeling uh, really blocked and feeling really burnt out on making comics. And it's not a sustainable way to work for me at least I think for some people that's that's their bread and butter that's great but it really really helped me to put limits on when I got to work and so it became like something I could look forward to and something that I could budget my time with uh in in a balance of like spending time with friends and seeing my family and getting to rest my hand a little bit yeah how are your hands they're good. I uh, <laughs> my last book was 300 pages, and I had eight months to do it from like from beginning to end. Uh, I, That's it was insane. A deadline essentially. 
Um, but it was, uh, this was something new. It was a book about, um, my wedding and, and the wedding industry in general and how it's kind of insane. And I, uh, uh the, my publisher really wanted to put it out for springtime for like wedding season. And so they said, either we can do it this spring or we can do it a year from then. And I said, well, I don't want to wait that long for this book to come out. So I'll get it to you by the spring. And, <laughs> and so it meant eight months, 300 pages, full color. Uh, and I hand lettered all of it. No, all of this is like a nightmare. <laughs> it's like an anxiety nightmare. <laughs> you know, throughout this, I saw people like once or twice in this eight month period socially. And I would tell other cartoonists that this is what I was doing. And they'd be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and I would say, I don't know. There's, there's deeply, deeply troubled <laughs> parts of me, clearly. Um, so for this next book, I'm being a lot easier on my hand. I, I really thought I was <laughs> I was blowing my hand out on that last one. Um, hand lettering 300 pages was just, it was a mistake. And I don't know why I did it. And now uh, th- this is the first book that I'm ever doing where I, I've made a font for myself and I'm, I'm digitally lettering it and I am never looking back. I'm, I'm kind of getting there. I'm getting Good. there. Uh, I, I got yes. I had a really tight deadline for Fetch. It was that kind of thing where they were like, yeah. They were like, Alison Bechdel's next book is coming around the bend. So if you don't finish it by this date, we're going to stall your book until, you know, like a year after her book comes out. And I was right, like, right. Uh, I-, I can do it. And then it was just, it was like nine months of people being like, come outside. I'd be like, leave me alone. You're hurting me <laughs> by inviting me to do things. But by the end of it, I had my arm. What would I do? I mean, I would do the stretches that you do. I was on an anti-inflammatory diet, taking turmeric as many ways yeah. as I could. Uh, wearing a wrist brace to sleep, but kind of towards the end, like having to wrap my wrist in an ACE bandage after yeah. working at the end of the day and using this like different balms and stuff and ice packs yeah. on it. Yeah, I, I had like a brace that I had to wear and I would get um, hand massages. It was the only way I got through it. It's nuts. Did you go to like a massage parlor and you just gave them your mm-hmm. hand? Yeah, I went to a, uh, who was I seeing? I went to a uh, an acupuncturist actually who knew how to do like acupressure on my hands. Oh, I would love that because I hate the needles in acupuncture, even though everyone's yeah. like, they're so small. You'll never, I'm like, I know, I know. No, they're horrible. I hated acupuncture, <laughs> but she was a really good masseuse. <laughs> this is great. Well, so I get manicures often and I, the, one of the highlights of getting them is they give you a really short hand massage at the end. Yeah. Oh, that sounds awesome. And I always try to like positive reinforcement be like that that feels great i like hoping that they'll just do it a little bit longer <laughs> but this sounds funny Here's a little extra tip <laughs> i know where there's times where i just want to walk in there and be like i don't even want you to do my nails will you just rub my hands and i'm sure that they will but something about it seems weird but the acupressure thing sounds great yeah yeah it was uh it was really nice it was worth it to uh keep going to that hack <laughs> She was, she was a terrible acupuncturist, but she was a really good masseuse. I love that. Maybe I'm going to try to yelp and find a bad acupuncturist. And oh, good, yeah. See if they're good at acupressure. <laughs> they have to, like, compensate somehow, apparently. Well, I got – I'm going to try to weave this in. I got acupuncture one time, and it was at a free clinic or, like, a cheat – like, I had – insurance for a minute but they're like try it out at this place so it wasn't a freak like but it was like just like too many people in a room and anyway Mm. the guy puts the pins in me and then as he's doing it and i have a needle phobia so i'm like counting backwards and breathing deep and trying to basically leave my body and he's like oh i I know you i've read some of your autobiographical comics i know all about you and little did he know that's the least relaxing thing a person could say to me yep 
Yeah. You're, you're like totally off your guard, like very vulnerable with literal needles sticking out of you. And it's like, perform for me. Perform your personality in the way that I understand it. Yep, yep. So, I mean, for me, the end of that story is that I ended up getting overheat. My body started overheating and I thought I was going to barf. So I had to have him take uh-huh. them out. I had to go lay on the bathroom floor, which was not yeah. not relaxing. Um, mm-hmm. But how do you feel about what people know about your life? Like, are there parts of your life that are guarded? Definitely. I, I think that every autobiographical author uh, edits their their life to, to present it to their readers. And for me, it's... You know, it's very, um, it's it's very honest and it's very open. But at the same time, there are certain things that I don't talk about. There are certain things that I hold private or just don't find interesting about my life that perhaps other people might. Uh, and I think that's, you know, people want to hear the dirty, gory details. And it's just, it doesn't interest me to write about all of those aspects of my life. And, um, of course, the most glaring thing about my work right now is that I don't share my son's real name online and uh, a lot of my work is about him and about parenthood right now but uh, I learned about the way that this uh, (laughs) the the way that parenthood is incredibly vulnerable you know you you suddenly have this person who's outside your body who's an incredibly vulnerable person to begin with and to uh, to be sharing yourself constantly leaves you some level of vulnerability naturally but now to have a child that you're exposing, uh, you want to take some precautions. So th- there's certainly parts of my work that are are censored, I suppose. Are there things besides your son's name that you will not talk about in comics? Um, I'm trying to keep my uh, comics about my son, uh, things that he wouldn't mind reading later in life that he's not going to be tortured by as an adolescent, as an adult. Um, I don't talk about like, diaper explosions and is you know personal aspects of parenthood that he might be embarrassed by if his friends were to see it at some point uh that's also kind of boring i I feel like it's kind of cheap (laughs) to exploit like a baby's diaper situation for cheap laughs but um i've got uh I've, i've got a pretty honest take on parenthood it's i'm trying to keep it my story rather than his yeah i think i feel like that's the goal at least for me, when involving other people in my work, right? Is always exactly. Trying to keep the focus on yourself because you're not, you're not here to write a story about them. I mean, exactly. it's not that kind of story. Yeah, and you want to be clear that it's your point of view and that you're not speaking for other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so will you talk about what your book is like? What and also you have a Patreon where people Thank can you. follow your baby exploits. And see your sketchbooks. But yeah, tell us about your book that you're working on right now. Sure. Uh, so this book is called uh, Kid Gloves. And it is. Uh, it started out being just about pregnancy. I, I was interested in writing about it. It's a transitional period in my life that I thought uh, was really interesting. This act of preparing for parenthood and the changes that your body undergoes. So that was the original conception of it. And then... The political spectrum started to change a little bit, and I realized that women's health and reproductive health was particularly paramount, and I was learning all of this new information about reproductive health over the course of trying to get pregnant, getting pregnant, going through miscarriages, um, going through infertility treatment, uh, and then just the course of my eventual pregnancy, 
I learned so many things that had never been taught to me in sex ed that I wanted to include in the book. So it's sort of partly my story, but it's also shared with the history of women's health, the uh, myths and misnomers of reproductive medicine, uh, the medicalization process of reproductive medicine, uh, and things that I was discovering along this path that I wanted to share with readers. So it's like um, something new when I talk about sort of wedding, where the origins of wedding superstitions and myths, uh, this, this does that as well. And with relish, I, I told stories about my experiences growing up with my mother, who is a chef and I interspersed all of the chapters with recipes. So this is the recipes in this book are, uh, are a little bit more intense. They're about women's health and reproductive medicine. God, it's like you've been practicing up for this book your whole life. I think it really is. I've been thinking about this for so long and, the timing is really good on this and I'm feeling really uh, excited about writing about these things right now. And uh, it's, it's really wonderful to be able to process all of these new emotions and this new information that I'm learning about reproductive medicine and parenting through writing this book. It's been great. Awesome. Well, let's talk about what does your schedule look like now? How do you, (laughs) how has it changed and has it changed in ways that you have, that you didn't expect? Well, I uh, I have a one-year-old now. He just turned one. And before I had a baby, I was pretty much expecting my work to be on hiatus for the early parts of his life. I just thought, okay, I'm not going to have any time to work at all. Don't expect this book anytime soon. And what ended up happening, we hired a really lovely nanny when he was about 12 weeks old. She comes in three days a week. Uh, she started with two, and we kind of like worked up uh, to three days a week. And now sometimes she does four. So I get this truncated week to work and I have nine to five on those days. And what it's done to my work is it's really energized me to focus. I talk to other parents about this stuff all the time that they they found that once they had kids, they had this limited amount of time to focus on the things that they needed to do. And it became like, all right, I have the tiger time. So you know, I sit down at 9 a.m. and instead of dicking around with like my email and like, ooh, what's new on Netflix? And it was like (laughs) checking blogs. I like sit down and I work really steadily because it's time that I'm paying somebody else to spend with my child to do something that I would rather be doing. So I'm not going to waste that time anymore. And, you know, it really keeps me honest. It's been it's been really good for my work in a way, and it's also a much healthier balance than I've ever had in the past where I work really hard for three or four days a week, and then I get to spend the rest of the time playing with a cute, fat little baby. It's great. That sounds off. That sounds so healthy. Yeah, it's, it's much healthier than I think I've ever worked in the past. And then when do you make time to kind of manage your career? So like dealing with emails, dealing with you know, um, dealing with Patreon, yeah. dealing with scanning, dealing with all the flim flam that goes along with being an artist. Well, part of it is I, I like reserve an hour every day to like get through my emails and um, manage that sort of thing. Uh, with Patreon and with my sketches, that's work that I, <laughs> that's extra work that I do after the baby's gone to sleep. Uh, I give myself time to write in my sketchbook every night if I feel up to it. And that allows me to share what I'm going through presently and not just sort of living constantly in my book. Uh, so it's that's really nice. But in terms of the scanning and the busy work of my book, I actually just hired my first assistant. So I love that. I'm really excited about it. They're starting on Wednesday and I've laid out 
the process of like how to prep my pages and it's it's hard. I think it's hard for a lot of cartoonists to kind of relinquish control over their work like that, that I'm gonna have to kind of pass this on to somebody else and hope that she does it right. But at the same time, it's so awesome to like look at the stack of pages and be like, I already did my job here. Like I drew these pages, I wrote them, and this is where I needed to get them to, and now I can just hand them off to somebody else. This is so great. I have I have to tell you I have done that for the last two books. At certain points, is having either interns or production assistants deal with. And last time, the pages I do are so big; they're fourteen by seventeen. So I took it. It's awful. Scanning it is awful. But so last time, I took it to an architectural scanning firm, and I just paid them to scan it. And then I had a production assistant do all the post stuff. Oh, that's great! And it was so great. It was just amazing. I'm really looking forward to this. I think that that's a nice gift to give yourself. Yeah, right? It's like, I, I have a kid now. I don't have time for this. And I just, I'm going <laughs> to, I have another deadline now. And it's it's going to be great. It's going to help me so much. I can't wait for this book to come out. Thank you. Me too. I'm really excited. It's uh, it's first second, though. So as soon as I hand it in, it's still going to be a year from when it's done. <laughs> yeah. That's the way where you're like, I'm done. And your friends are like, you're done. When's it coming out? And you're like, you're right. not even going to remember that this happened when it comes yeah. out. That's going to be so long for everyone else. Right. Um, I, be like, didn't that already come out? <laughs> you're like, or, people keep saying to me, like, oh, are you on tour for Fetch? And I'm like, no, because if it was out, you would obviously have a copy of it because you would have purchased one. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> they read it in their minds. They've, they've already absorbed it. It's they're, like, like, they're like, we saw that you drew something. So that's is that as good as having read it? Um, I think of you whenever I make mushrooms because of okay. your recipe and relish for squeaking mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I make them and then they squeak, I think of you. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so happy to be associated with such a good noise, such a lovely sound. Yeah, and, and for a moment, and you came up quite a bit because for a moment I was dating a cheesemonger uh, oh, a couple years ago. And so I was like, oh, well, like I feel like you're the intersection of comics and cheesemongering. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. There, I, I feel like I'm spreading that virus throughout the comics world that there's now there's more like cheese focused comic artists it's good (laughs) it's a good focus to have you are blazing the path (laughs) thank you um before okay we have an advice question for you okay that is deeply medical so Mm -hmm. (laughs) let me let me pull this up but while i'm pulling this up do you have general advice for young cartoonists and or is there something you wish someone or you know someone would have told your younger self well the story that I often like to relate when people ask me that question is something that someone actually did tell me when I was a young cartoonist that saved my life and uh, this was when I was at graduate school at the Center for Cartoon Studies in Vermont and I had dedicated you know the year to making comics and immersing myself in comics all i read was comics all i I ate slept breathed comics and i burned out like a comet flaming into the sun it was just it was way too much it was all comics people all the time it was like being at a comic convention 24 hours a day for a year and i 
I just couldn't fathom it anymore. And I had gone to four years of art school before this. I'd gone straight to grad school from there. And I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. First of all, I should have taken a year. And, um, secondly, you know, you can be as dedicated as you, as you want to a career path and to a medium of, of work, to a genre of work. But if you don't have any other outside influences, you're going to burn out. It's going to, it's going to explode for you. And that's what happened to me. I, I just suddenly didn't know if I wanted to do this as a career. I didn't know what that career was going to look like, what I wanted to be in a few years. I didn't know why I wanted to make comics anymore or whether I wanted to be around comics people anymore. And it was just a really rough time. It was towards the end of the year. And Linda Berry, the goddess herself, came to teach a creativity workshop at the school. And she, you know, floated down from the clouds with her beautiful, like, (laughs) beautiful suede fringe jacket trailing behind her and gave this really incredible, incredible workshop. And if you ever have the opportunity to take a workshop with Linda Berry, I highly recommend it. Please do it. It's it's the best thing you can do for any kind of creative work. Uh, and at the end of this workshop, I just felt so, so, be- so much better, like a weight had been lifted and I was feeling so invigorated, but I still had to go back and reimmerse myself in this comics world that I was feeling so unsure about. So the morning after her workshop, I went to go get myself a bagel at the bagel shop and she was standing in line right in front of me. I think I didn't like sleep that night. I was so jazzed about the workshop that like I'd been up all night and I was like, I need to get a bagel. So it's like 6 a.m. and I'm standing in line behind Linda Berry and I'm like shaking and um, she's right in front of me and she turns around and she's like, oh, you're in my workshop, right? And I was like, yes. And I burst into tears (laughs) and I started telling her about how burnt out I felt and how I didn't know what I was doing with my life and I didn't know if comics was for me and how I worked really hard and I, I had lost the passion for it. And uh, and Linda Berry sort of, I, I, I'm sure she gets this a lot because <laughs> she, she very calmly looked at me and she said, um, you know, your art is like a little baby. It's like having a baby. It's this reflection of yourself. It's this very pure, innocent, fragile thing. And you have this baby and so many people immediately just want to jump on the back of this baby and say, ride me to the bank, baby. (laughs) And that's obviously not going to work. It's this beautiful, pure, fragile little reflection of yourself. And what you have to do is take care of the baby. You have to nourish it and give it rest and give it time and to grow and, and sort of, you know, take other jobs to feed the baby and do what you can to make the baby be healthy and grow. And once the baby is there, once they're big and healthy and strong, then you climb on to the baby's back and say, all right, let's go to the bank. And that's, (laughs) that's the advice that she gave me that day. And I'll never forget it. And like, it's so funny because it's so applicable now to parents as well <laughs> that you can't uh, expect your baby to to actually be doing more than it's capable of at the time but it helps me so much with my art that I needed to give it the respect and the rest and the kindness that it deserved in order to be a successful artist and to be a healthy artist I needed to uh, not expect so much of my art not put so much pressure on myself as an artist oh my God, that's beautiful 
Isn't that a cool story? I'm so glad I have that in the in the memory banks. I think that you may have just really helped me too because I I got into a Linda Berry workshop that's in August. Ooh. But I got my second choice. My first choice was writing the unthinkable, but then okay. that was sold out. So I did this one called, I'm going to do this one called writing from workbook 52, but it's her and a guy, but I remember being like, oh man, it's her and a guy. It's not just her. Like maybe I should wait a year and do writing the unthinkable. But now I'm like, if there's any way that I can take any workshop with Linda Berry. Yeah. You should do both. <laughs> I just, and then like next year I'll do that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, she would, I'm sure any guy she does a workshop with is going to be cool. Yeah, I, I think so too. Thank you. This was, this was very helpful both for my listeners and for myself. Dear Lucy, and you may have to explain some of what some of these things are oh, sure, for yeah. me and the listeners. Cool. Since you had uterine septum surgery, I wanted to ask you what your experience was with it. Was it awful? I have it scheduled in a month and I'm absolutely terrified. My therapist is helping me, but I want to know if there's anything you wish you had known beforehand or any words of comfort you could give someone who is about to go down this road. Well, okay. So first of all, let me just tell you what uterine septum surgery is. Uh, I had a septum in my uterus. And if you think about this, it's like a stalactite that hangs down in your uterus. It's just like flesh in there. Uh, you could imagine that most uteruses are shaped like a ball. Mine was shaped like a heart. Oh. Yeah, right. It, I inside, that the stalactite's inside the uterus. Yes, that's correct. Mm, okay. So what ha usually happens if you get pregnant and you have a septum like this is that the egg, instead of attaching to the uterine wall, which is full of like nutrients and healthy things that feed the egg, uh, the egg attaches to the septum, which is just flesh. It doesn't have all of the nutrients and the things that you need on the uterine wall to feed the egg. So it usually results in miscarriage. And that's why when you're undergoing fertility treatments, they check you out and they, they check out the interior of your uterus and they make sure that this doesn't happen. And if they do, they do something called a uterine septum resection surgery. And it's a, it's a surgery where they, they put you down, they put you out and they, um, they cut the septum. They, they go in vaginally and they cut the septum and the septum just sort of, um, splits and goes away. And then it's not, it's not like present in the uterus anymore for the egg to attach to. So uh, I had this after two miscarriages, they diagnosed me with a septum and I went in, I had this surgery and uh, I have, I have my son now, I have my one year old. So I got pregnant pretty soon after. And uh, I just wanted to tell that questionnaire, like, I'm really glad that you're seeing a therapist. I did as well. And it, she really helped me over the course of this process. And I think it's a really, really good idea. It's a really healthy thing to do. And um, if I were doing it again, I would plan a big dinner for a couple days after the surgery because the hardest part of the surgery for me was not eating for the whole day. Like the surgery is a breeze. It's really not a big deal. You don't eat for a while and then uh, you know, they knock you out so you don't feel any pain. I didn't even feel any pain afterwards. I had no like recovery pain. It was totally painless and uh, very scary, of course, because it's uterus surgery, but I was really hungry and that was what I was really most focused on. I was really, really hungry. And so I made sure that my husband got me a really big cookie afterwards. So that was really nice. And I had 
lovely food afterwards to kind of soothe myself and baby myself afterwards. And I felt great like a few days later, but give yourself some time to recover. I'm sure that that's not always the case with every surgery that people go through. I mean, any surgery is going to be hard on your body, but I was braced for something horrifying and it was really a lot better than I had anticipated. Um, that said, I am really glad I went through with the surgery. It was exactly what needed to happen. It's a lovely thing when you are diagnosed with something because it goes from being this unexplained problem to like, oh, there's something that is wrong with me that can be fixed. Because in a lot of cases of um, repeat miscarriage, there's there's something called unexplained infertility, which they can diagnose you with, which is maddening. It's like, a, it's like a, they should really change the name. It's a horrible thing to tell somebody who's just looking for answers that like, oh, you're never going to get answers for this horrible thing that keeps happening to you. So uh, I will say that I, I was really grateful to get the diagnosis and to get the surgery and to know that the surgery was so simple because it was it was an answer all of a sudden to what was plaguing me. That's so great. Do you talk about miscarriages and infertility in your book? Yes, definitely. It's uh, one of the main things that I talk about in the focus of the book because what I wasn't told in sex ed as a kid is that one in four pregnancies actually end in miscarriage, which is an astronomically huge number. It's, I mean, 25% of pregnancies. And I learned this after my first miscarriage. So I did not anticipate it at all. Uh, I got pregnant for the first time right after we started trying. And I was like, woohoo, smooth sailing. This is all going great for me. And then I was totally blindsided when I had a miscarriage. I didn't know to to be cautious. I didn't know to be um, careful with my feelings. And uh, we told my whole family before it happened that I was pregnant. And it was just a, a nightmare to have to then tell everybody we had told like oh just kidding so this is information that i really could have used before so that's in the book and um my experiences going through the grief of that and trying to understand the medical aspects of that and the things that i did to to myself to to get through it like uh I, we talked a little bit about the um acupuncturist at the beginning of our conversation where uh, I talked about how she was a great masseuse. The original reason why I started going to an acupuncturist is because they are um, well-renowned for treating infertility. And so I thought, all right, I'll give it a try. It wasn't for me. Didn't end up liking it. But uh, but I was at that point sort of willing to try a lot of different things to to feel like I had some agency in this kind of biological miasma of what I was going through. Like I had no control over what my body was doing, but I could control how I was responding to it. And that was one of the things that I did. That's so great. I'm really happy you're making this book. I mean, I already said that, but I'm happy because also people I know that have had miscarriages, it's a shock. And then they don't realize that they know so many other people that have had miscarriages until they have their own. And people come out of the woodwork. They come, you know, start seeping out of the walls. Everyone they know saying, oh, yeah. I had a miscarriage, and I had no one to talk to about it. Oh, I had a miscarriage. I had no one to talk to about it. Exactly. And it's so crazy because these people that I I think are already so amazing came out, and they were like, oh, yeah, I went through it. It was awful. And you you suddenly see this wide world of shared grief and um, shared experience that was so hidden before. And I, I, you know, I want to be able to reach out in that way to offer a compassionate hand to people going through something like that as well. Awesome. 
That's very nice of you. Oh, you. <laughs> I have two questions for you. One, I, I'm vegan, so if you can pretend like we're playing Chopped or something, okay. what what do you think is like the most delicious snack off the top of your head? Ooh, most delicious snack. That you okay. potentially could feed a vegan person. Okay, okay. Um, let's see. <laughs> I was just at uh, the Chicago Diner. I live in Chicago. I was just at the Chicago Diner, which is this really famous... Uh, Chicago institution that's uh, their slogan is meat free since 83 and they're uh, they're amazing it was really good vegetarian diner and um, they have a really really good vegan Reuben mm-hmm. I know that is not a snack so to speak <laughs> an entire I, sandwich I appreciate your gusto as far as snacks go <laughs> yes um, but I also had their uh, they have vegan milkshakes there that are to die for so if you're ever in chicago if you are a vegetarian or vegan or not and just a food enthusiast uh you should definitely check out the chicago diner and get they have like this peanut butter chocolate milkshake that is totally vegan and totally amazing i love that i remember going there as a teenager and getting even just like pancakes and be like oh my god i'm eating a vegan pancake oh my god (laughs) oh my god i forgot to ask you oh go ahead because they're like this greasy spoon diner and you think of like vegan food you you go and you get like a lettuce leaf at a place but you go to this place and it's like here's a pile of greasy diner food and it's so it's awesome it's great it's a great uh crowd pleaser for people who are vegetarian and are not vegetarian and sort of like a, a a good overall great place what's the weirdest snack that you eat at home the weirdest snack um my Family has constantly made fun of me for this, but I uh, I really like just a piece of toast with um, with like butter and a pickle on it. <laughs> I call it pickle bread, and it's <laughs> it's like the best snack in the world. And I have it all the time, and it's it's ideal. It's so good and so easy. And uh, I, I've eaten a lot of pickle bread since my son was born because I don't have a lot of time to like cook anymore. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's kind of weird. I've never been able to fully accept that it's weird. I, I, it seems very natural to me. It's not that weird. It's just like a sandwich missing a couple elements. You know what right. I mean? Like people yeah. have pickles on a sandwich all the time, don't they? Yes. And it's just, it's pared down to the best part of the sandwich, which is the pickle. Is I it, pretty much eat just pickles. Are we talking slices or spear? I'm a I'm a, a universal pickle lover in any in any case, but um, I vacillate between the like the cold brew pickles that are that are super crispy. I like sweet and sour, and I also at all times have a jar of cornichon in my house, the super sour little tiny pickles that I really love. So uh, so it depends on the mood, but pickle bread is very versatile. This is great. I love, well, so my listeners know I love eating, this is going to gross you out, but I love eating prunes dipped in tahini and that, I love that. It's like, and like right before we did the podcast, I have strawberries that I was dipping in this weird kind of curry tahini I just got. That's a little bit sweet. It's like palm sugar, turmeric, whatever, curry spices, lemongrass. Oh, that sounds really good. It's really, really delicious. And it sounds a little crazy, but it's so good. And I was dipping strawberries in that right before we talked so where that sounds great i mean if you think of tahini as like peanut butter it's it's basically the same thing and then or if you think of those things as smoothie ingredients people have those things together all the time that's true i forgot to ask you the most classic question which is what do you think it's like to date a cartoonist 
Oh God. Um, having never dated a cartoonist, actually, I think I have trouble answering that question. My husband is like a computer guy, he's a designer, and I, I always <laughs> sort of went out of my way to date non-cartoonists, I will say. I think it's a, a tough road to hoe when you are trying to thing as your romantic partner that you are always slightly in competition or at the very least you can never really disconnect from your work fully so i've always thought that it was probably pretty hard as a cartoonist to date a cartoonist but as a non-cartoonist um it depends on how much you like drawings of yourself because my husband really likes drawings of himself he thinks he looks really handsome in all of my art and uh he also doesn't mind sort of sharing our personal life the way that I tell these stories and we have a, a pretty healthy relationship uh, I actually had him write one of the chapters of the book that I'm working on now because just in case all of the trauma of getting pregnant wasn't enough I almost died in childbirth and I was in a coma for a few days so my <gasps> I didn't know you were in a coma yeah it was it was not a good scene man so uh I didn't remember that part, and I needed to write about it, so I had my husband actually write that chapter for me, and he he fought me every step of the way. I'm not a writer. I'm not. I'm gonna mess it up. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And I was like, No, no, no. It's fine. Just like tell me the facts and nothing but the facts. And he so he contributed to this book. He's gonna get a little byline. <laughs> I'm so glad you came out of your coma. Yeah, me too. <laughs> No, my friend Michelle T was writing a blog all about getting pregnant and having a baby, and she had the same infertility and miscarriages and a lot of sad stuff. And then she got pregnant, hooray! And then she basically almost bled to death while she was, you know, yeah. when she was having her baby. Yeah. And I was like, no, um, no, America no, no. has the highest maternal death rate of any developed nation in the country. It's a really uh, tough place to be a woman who's trying to have a kid. I mean, it's a tough place to be a woman, but uh, it's really, uh, it's not a good scene. It's it's really hard to navigate the medical world at this point. And there's so much focus on keeping the baby healthy that it kind of glosses over the mother's health. And I, I know that will not come as a surprise to a lot of people who've seen the way that our our society kind of views motherhood versus um, versus the baby's health or you know, the, the parent's health. But uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's an all too common problem. And I, I love Michelle T. I, I love her books and I, uh, it, it means so much to me to hear about women who I respect and admire who've lived through this kind of thing and who speak out about it. And so that's what I'm trying to do myself with this book. Awesome. Um, okay, well, you tell people how they can find you, how they can support you, and if they get in on your Patreon thing, what do they get to see? Sure thing. Um, so you can go to my website, which is just Lucy Nisley, spelled K-N-I-S-L-E-Y, Dot com. Uh, if it's easier to remember, which it often is, you can also go to stoppayingattention.com. That'll take you straight to my page. Uh, and there you can find information about my books, information about what I'm working on presently, some, a bunch of free comics, and um, information about me and my life. And if you go to my Instagram page, you can see lots of cute pictures of my baby. He's, like, exceptionally cute. I know that I am biased in saying that, but, you know, it's, I mean, it's pretty universally confirmed. <laughs> And if you want to support me on Patreon, that's lovely. I would really appreciate it. And I put sketches up uh, a few times a week, uh, usually about babies, parenthood, um, being a mom from kind of a nerdy feminist perspective. And I 
I'm really into it. It's a really fun time. But if you're not into babies, maybe uh, maybe steer clear. <laughs> it's very baby heavy right now. God, I really think even the Baron among us can really enjoy some baby comics because just it's a different, it's a diversity of feminist experience. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's lovely. I mean, I my work focuses on this, these kind of domestic issues, like um, my relationship with my mother and cooking and getting married and now parenthood. And it's uh, it's wonderful to be able to write about these things and reclaim them and, and to talk about these things that are like women's issues from uh, if, if you want to claim it in that regard. But uh, it's it's great to be able to do that and to to have this kind of modern version of womanhood and my own version of womanhood and motherhood that is is lovely and it's great to see it supported so i'm very happy to connect with all of these moms non-moms kid people non-kid people and uh and to make those connections with readers is is absolutely why i do this it's great yay well i hope everybody goes to your page i hope everyone goes to your patreon page and thanks for coming on the podcast my pleasure nicole thanks for inviting me Alec Longstrip is my close personal friend and productivity coach. He is the author of the graphic novel Basewood, the online kids comic Isle of Elsie, the comic Phase 7, and more. You can find him at aleclongstrip.com. Alec Longstrip, welcome back to Sagittarian Matters. Always a pleasure, Nicole. I am coming to you today from the closet of my condo in San Francisco, where I am teaching at CCA for the month. Where are you? Uh, I am in my office in Santa Fe, New Mexico at my home. Great. So, Alec, I, um, I want to know how things went with you having a baby. But first of all, you came on the podcast before and talked about some of the advice that you had gotten from cartoonists uh-huh. about staying productive while having a baby can you refresh us on some of that advice yeah so first of all i just want to make it totally clear that my wife had the baby (laughs) not me um and uh yeah some of the advice i got uh i uh i it's it's like not possible to bring up this name without it sounding like i'm name dropping but uh, i have i have a small correspondence going with a gentleman you might know named chris ware um and uh anyways uh in phase seven, which is my mini comic, I had been talking about like, oh, I'm a parent. I'm soon going to be a parent. You know, I'm worried about my comics productivity. And so he uh, wrote me a really nice postcard. And his advice was to sort of front load um, as, you know, like as, as soon as uh, we realized that my wife, Claire, was pregnant, it's like this cl- giant clock is ticking on the wall. And it's like countdown, nine months. Um, and so it's like use that nine months to basically prep as much stuff as possible so that when the baby does come, um, you can sort of uh, work on stuff. Um, everyone's comics process is a little different. But for instance, um, I can't write when I'm tired. You know, if I have a late night, I'm trying to hit a deadline and I wake up the next morning, and I'm tired. I have a very hard time writing because it's sort of creative improvisation, you know, pulling the story out of nowhere. Um, so, for instance, I spent much of that nine months i would script a page or two every morning um so that by the end of the nine months i had i think something like 200 pages of scripted comics ready to go plus 
a backlog of projects that were like being released. So um, I so now my my daughter in six days will be a year and a half. She'll be eighteen months. Uh, little Suzanne. And um, I have still not even touched that buffer of work. So, like, I think that was very successful um, and was great advice. You know, like, I penciled a bunch of pages, and during that first, like, the first three months of Suzanne's life, I was getting four hours of sleep every night, uh, seven days a week. Um, and I'm a very active parent. Claire and I both work from home. Um, and so, um, you know, like we, we basically just take two hour shifts. Like I take the baby for two hours, Claire takes the baby for two hours and we just go back and forth. Um, but so that meant like, you know, feeding her a bottle at night, changing her diaper and staying up with her for half the night. And then Claire stays up with her for the other half of the night. So that's like the most tired I've ever been in my life. And I was like the crazy guy in college that was like, I read an internet article where you, you know, you don't need sleep. You know, if you get five hours of sleep, your body will adjust or whatever. Um, and I've done, uh, over 15 24 hour comics you know i pull all-nighters and all that kind of stuff it was all a baby's challenge compared to the challenge of actually having a baby <laughs> um and that's like the most tired i've ever been in my life but i had like pencil pages that i had accumulated during that nine month you know uh period where i was getting ready um and so like i can ink when i'm that tired that's not you know my my pencils are so tight that like i can literally be a sleep deprived zombie and i can like force myself to sit down in my chair and like ink some pages um so yeah i mean i I think that was like really good advice um and then you know not to just totally focus on the productivity and work side of it some of the advice that i really appreciated from gb tran um who's one of your co-instructors there at the california college of the arts mfa program um i i had dinner with him i think you were at that dinner Uh, we had dinner um sort of at the end of one of the school years or something um and he just sort of said, like, you know, there's lots of I, I just listed frames of reference for like not getting enough sleep. Like most of us can relate to that. But the part of being a new parent that you can't relate to is like you just have no frame of reference for like this new person being in your life and um, inspiring you and all the sort of love and uh, warm feelings that come from that. So, like, I would just say the other thing that happened is Suzanne's here and she's great and I love her and um You know, I spend a lot of time with her each day. You know, I spend basically eight hours a day with her uh, while Claire takes the other eight. And then, you know, I'm on call all night with Claire. Um, So just like, I don't know, like reading books with her, like I've started to want to do children's books and stuff. And I've started drafting some of that stuff because now I'm reading lots of picture books and lots of them are horrible. And you think this got published or whatever. (laughs) Um, So there's also just kind of like the positive side of that. But uh, I'm sort of rambling. Jump in here with a question. I'm jumping. How's the how's the two hour shift thing going? Do you still do that? Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's it, we we try to be really strict about it um, and respectful of each other's time. Um, but like, you know, it's I, I think I, I don't want to say it's like a mom dad thing because obviously, you know, it's 2017. Like there are male male couples or female female couples that are raising kids, um, and I think it's probably different for every relationship. But like. I'll just say, like, there, there's, like, a comfort that Claire can provide that I can't. And whether that's her mom or just she's the more nurturing one, like, in our relationship, um, you know, like, I can have Suzanne for two hours and that works great until, like, you know, she eats shit on something and just, you know, smashes her face into something because she falls down or um, bumps her elbow on something in a harsh way and it hurts or something. And it's, like, when she goes into, like, nuclear meltdown you know crying or something it's like 
there's only so much comfort I can provide. And then like, she needs to be with Claire or, um, when I, when I have a two hour block, I noticed like towards the end of the two hour block, you know, like when you're getting to like an hour and 45 minutes, like Suzanne will get this far away look in her eye and she'll sort of mumble to herself. She'll say like, mama, mama, you know, <laughs> she's like, I'm almost done hanging out with this guy. Like, you know, you can tell she's daydreaming about like, oh my God, just a few more minutes and then I get to be with mom. So, um, I, I do my best. We try to split it, but sometimes there's just like special circumstances where it's like, oh my God, you know, she just really needs some extra time with Claire. So um, it doesn't always, it probably skews a little bit more towards Claire or just the nature of our work too. Um, like you, you're in San Francisco um, and you're there to teach for like a long block of time. Um, you know, like I just went to, I just came back from Vermont where I was for two weeks teaching and like, you know, Claire had to watch Suzanne 24 hours a day for like 10 of those days. Um, and was like a sole, you know, care provider for Suzanne. Um, and that's just like the nature of my work. Like, you know, I can't do that from Santa Fe, whereas Claire, uh, all her work is done from home. So sometimes there's imbalances there, but like when I come home, I try and take the kid a little bit more to give her a break and stuff. Um, but we, we try to keep it somewhat even, but I would say if I'm being totally honest, it's probably more like 90%, uh, or, or sorry, probably 60% Claire, 40% me, like 10% skewed towards Claire. I think the, the main thing about comics is comics is time management. That's, that's all it is at, at a certain point. Like you and I, Nicole. Yeah. I just want to, I just want to use a word and I, it sounds Go. braggy, but I don't care. Go ahead. You, Nicole Georges. And I, Alec Longstreth, we are master cartoonists. Ah. We have drawn enough pages. How many issues of – she's crying, folks. She's wiping tears away from her eyes. This is good podcasting. How many <laughs> issues of Invincible Summer have you put out, Nicole? I mean probably like 25. Let's round up. 30. Okay? 30. And okay. I, <laughs> I mean, I have, I mean, I put out 23. Let's both say 30. We've both done 30. We've done 30, but I mean, I do have like 400 pages of unpublished diary comics just at my house. And I have zines and stuff. So let's yeah. say we've both done like 30 issues of our zines. Yeah. You have Calling Dr. Laura. Fetch is just about to drop, folks. Look for it in a bookstore near you. I've got Basewood under my belt. I've got uh, Isle of Elsie. You know, I'm creeping up on 100 pages of that or whatever. We are master cartoonists at this point. And what I mean by that is that in all that early work, we've figured out all the shit that stresses out a young cartoonist. We know our tools. Uh, we uh, have a creative process. We know how to tell, communicate a story come up with a story, communicate it. Um, you know, we know how to reproduce the art. We know what tools we use. We don't have to stress about all that stuff that young cartoonists are like, how do I just make the comic? We know how to make comics now. Um, and so for us, it's literally just like logging hours at the drawing table, like putting in enough time so that you have another book. Um, and this is something we've talked about. And, you know, I'm, I, I, I sit in as your like time management coach occasionally. Um, we'll have a powwow. We did it last summer, right? We sat down and you're like, I need to finish fetch. And so we like, pulled up a calendar we figured out you know uh how many days off you were going to take how many hours per day you wanted to work we scheduled it you stuck to the schedule and you met your deadline which was great um but it's like that's the kind of stuff that you have to think about when you're a parent because like i can't sit for eight hours anymore that's not an option you know like everything i do is interrupted um because i only get a two-hour chunk and then i have to deal with suzanne um so literally like my 16 hours that i'm awake has been cut in half um, so I have to cram in everything I do in my life, my teaching work, uh, my day job stuff, you know, paying bills, repairing our house, all this kind of stuff, and then draw comics. So like at this point, I have 90 minutes in the morning that are sacred. 
I have like communicated to my partner, like, I don't want to see the baby during this 90 minutes. Just keep her away. You know, like if she has something she wants to show me, I'll do it at the end of that 90 minutes because that's my only time to work. Um, and this was another thing that I heard before the baby came was just that like you'll be more productive. Um, and I already think I was at a pretty high level of productivity. But what they're talking about is like when you only have 90 minutes, you have like the most insane laser focus of all time. Um, yeah. Because you're just like, this is it. This is all I have. I have 90 minutes today. And so you just sit down and you just like blast through more work. There's no like, oh, pick up my phone and like look at Twitter while I'm drawing. <laughs> oh, whoops. I wasted five minutes because like five minutes is precious. I think so. Could you extend some of that advice to the non-parent cartoonist? You're like, yo, set up yo, a time block for yeah. yourself. Make it sacred. Like your life yeah, depends like, on totally, it. Totally. But I mean, also, I would just say like, hey, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in your 20s and you have like zero fucking responsibility right now, you should be drawing your ass off. Like leave the party early at 10 p.m. Go home and draw for two hours. Get eight hours of sleep a night and, you know, just draw, 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 draw. Because... When you get to where I am, where my time is limited, you need to have figured out all your early 20s, early cartooning mistakes and shit, right? Like, I don't think I would be able to deal with all that on top of the limited time. Um, well, like, because if I had to sit there and, like, try to draw a hand over and over and over again, but I only have 90 minutes, that's not going to be an effective use of my time. Whereas now, I only have 90 minutes, but I know how to draw hands, so I can just, like, go, blam, 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 and, you know, like, get through my requisite page of hands or whatever. Well, that's the thing is, you know, I think that people, I think it's maybe a lot of, a lot of, well, my stumbling was done in public, but to fewer people than who know me now. But like when we became cartoonists, we both stumbled a bit, you know? absolutely. And so, you know, one of the greatest pieces of advice that I think both of us have given students is even if you're excited about your stuff and you have a story that's been in your head a long time, do not begin a graphic novel until you've done many many pages of comics that are not that long like draw a story that's one page draw a story that's four pages Try drawing a story that's 12 pages can you yeah. draw a cohesive story that's 32 pages before you start on something that's like 200 pages because your style will change and you will learn how to draw hands in a different way from page 1 to page 50 to page 150 well or even even just from a technical standpoint i mean phase seven number one i took out a sheet of copy paper because that's like paper and then i had seen something where like that cartoonist used croquil 102 nibs dipped in real india ink Uh so i did that i like dipped a nib in india ink and then i started drawing on the copy paper which if you're a cartoonist you're probably like cringing right now it was bleeding everywhere you know and i was like (laughs) oh why is this so hard you know so if that was page one of my graphic novel then you know i get 20 pages into it be like this is impossible and i would throw away instead it was a crappy one-page comic i was like wow this looks horrible but at least i've got a page and then you know you talk to someone or you go to an art supply store and talk to someone there or you see something online now you just see stuff online this was kind of pre-internet days but um now you're just like oh bristol board and then suddenly like oh now i can draw with this nib on the paper now that's less stress and so now you're not focused on like why does this line suck now you're drawing a nice line and so you start thinking like oh well what is the character thinking and so then you get a little bit better at telling your story um so yeah you know we both learned in public figured out all that shit technical stuff storytelling stuff all the way up to a point where like then you're ready to like jump in on a 200 page project um and you know it'll look consistent and you'll be able to figure it out yeah i think that advice bears repeating over and over again 
And I want to say, regarding you being my productivity coach, I just found this. I hope you'll let me put it in my slideshow for Fetch. But I found this text exchange we had that I took a screenshot of that just is me saying, I am so sick of working on this book. (laughs) And you saying, the last 10% takes 90% of the effort. Luckily, you've got tons of grit and are as tough as nails. You are stronger than this book. Yeah. And then I said, you don't know that feeling like. You literally don't know that feeling unless you've been on page 190 of a 200-page graphic novel. Your wrist hurts. Your back hurts. You haven't seen your friends in months. You're just, like, up in your head. You don't want to look at every, – every single page looks disgusting to you. You just don't want to look at the project. You don't want to be sitting there anymore. It's a beautiful day outside. You know, like, only a cartoonist knows the amount of time and energy and pain that goes into getting that far. And then to have to push through those last 10 pages is, like – so hard and then it's like getting out of creative jail when you're done <laughs> you know it's like oh i finished the book you know i can do a short story again and have fun with comics again after taking a break or whatever oh i know and then also you have sorry i'm checking to see if we have questions we don't but then also you have like all this scheduling space and kind of like a like you've budgeted into your life the feeling of you know, sitting and drawing for six hours at a time or however long. So then when mm-hmm. people ask you to do like a tiny project, you're like, like you just, they're yeah. like, how'd you do that? And you're like, well, I've just been sitting here every day. And now I cranking a page out every day or whatever. Yeah. You're like, and this is way fun. Cause, but yeah, I spent like the past, you know, probably at the final year of fetch, I spent telling my friends, no, like yeah. to, to fun things and offers and like, hey, you know, we're all going to go get happy hour drinks. No, sorry. Or like, oh, I'll go to dinner with you guys for an hour, but then I have to go. And everyone's like, where are you going? And I'm like, I got to go to work. opportunities. You know, people saying like, hey, you know, do you want to do this really exciting, you know, large project? And you just have to be like, I'm sorry. I'm in the last home stretch of my book. I'm going to be working on this for three months. I'm just not available. I can't commit to that because then that pushes back your book or whatever. I mean, those are the hard choices that happen. I think oh. the weird thing about being in L.A. is that, or not the hard thing, the hard thing about being in L.A. is that, like, I tell people I just, just finished a graphic novel, and they they act like I just blew my nose in front of them. I Like, they just, they're like, yeah. graphic novel, cool. But then I'm like, yeah, I'm really, you know, taking a break yeah. for a minute because I just finished a graphic novel. It's like 300 pages, and they're like, huh. Anyway, and I'm just like. Like, I feel like I'm just telling them, like, you know, my body just got ripped in half and then sewn back together. And they're like, hmm. Because yeah, no one. like, oh, you just sneezed. They're just like, uh, gesundheit. So, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I don't know what I want. I don't want them to all. I get a standing ovation in every room I walk into or people, like, cry one tear for me or give me a trophy or something. But. Yeah, it, it's hard. I, I really struggle sometimes, like, interacting with muggles who just, like, don't understand what we go through and the, the work that goes into it. Um, I had this interesting interaction on Twitter where, like, I, I would get really angry in public um, when people would, like, comment on my drawing. I don't know if this happens to you, but uh, I'd just be, like, drawing on an airplane and, like, you know, oh. someone would say, oh, that looks really good or whatever. And you're like, thanks? You know, like, I don't I don't look over some business person's shoulder and be like – you know, oh, you're doing a really good job on that spreadsheet, you know, business guy or whatever. It's like, yeah, this is what I do for my living. You know, I'm a professional master cartoonist here. Um, and then you have some sort of person just like, oh, well, you know, I read Garfield in the newspaper. Garfield is great. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, that stuff used to just drive me nuts because they just have no frame of reference um, what you're going through and uh, how much work it is and what a commitment it is. Um, but I like because I kind of think it's like you're a magician. 
Absolutely. Like you yeah. getting to do this thing in front of them, they're like, whoa. And I mean, I can't really, if I think that my seatmates have any interest in me at all, I'm not going to draw a thing because I'll just end up being like an angry high schooler who's writing like, don't look over my shoulder in the <laughs> yeah. margin. Anyway, um, yeah. Alec, do you have any yeah, less? I mean, and I understand it too. Sorry, just to put a pin in this. Yeah. I, I understand it because it's like, yeah, that person in L.A., you know, learned about graphic novels, went down to Secret Headquarters, picked out a graphic novel, and read it that afternoon. And was like, oh, these are cool. They're quick and fun. And, you know, I read Blankets coming home from San Diego Comic-Con in 2003 on my two-hour flight oh. back to Seattle or whatever. You know, and I read the whole thing, which took Craig six years or something. It's 600 pages. You know, it's like his whole heart and soul. And it's like, oh, yeah, I flipped through it and read the whole thing in two hours. So, like... You can't blame muggles for just being like, oh, this must be easy because it's easy to, you know, uh, ingest or whatever you want to call it, experience. But they just have no idea what actually goes into it. No, they don't. So, young cartoonists, think about this before you embark on a graphic novel. Do some things that are shorter first. And if they're good enough, then you could put them all together at some point and have something. This is master cartoonists giving you this advice. <laughs> Masters. Do you have any last advice for young cartoonists? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really just the, the thing you said. It's sort of like, you know, see if you can tell a story, uh, a, a quick 10-page story, you know, and if you can do that, great, move on to the next one um, before you jump in. And then, uh, yeah, just take advantage of it. I mean, I actually remember getting this advice because I was in New York uh, and I was in art school at Pratt Institute at their Manhattan campus. And so I used to ride the subway from Brooklyn into Manhattan every day. And that was the only time in my schedule because I was so busy with school homework at night to draw comics. And so I used to lean against the subway door and I would draw. And all my cartoonist friends thought this was nuts because the subway's moving and shaking and stuff. But I just like adapted to it because it was the only time I had. So I learned if, you know, you don't make long strokes with your pencil, like you just do like quick, short pencil strokes. You can sort of lean there and bob with the train and get this work done. And then Nick Bertozzi, who was teaching at SVA, uh, found out about it and he was like, oh, that's, that's, you know, so great. And then he like grabbed my shoulder and looked me like deep in the eyes. And he's, let's say at this point, like, I don't know, probably just, uh, he and his wife had just had their daughter and he's probably like, how old I am now, you know, talking to people who are listening were my age at the time I was 25 or something. And he grabs me by the shoulder and he's like, never stop drawing. Like, you know, just like keep going. Like, I know you're working super hard. Like, you're basically working this whole second job, but just like do it because life only gets more complicated. Your time only gets more restricted. Um, and, you know, that was basically him trying to speak back in time to himself, saying, like, you know, take advantage of all this free time you have because it's like, you know, you're not going to have that time um, as your life, as you get older and you have more responsibilities and your life gets more complicated. And not even just kids, but just life. I don't know, you know, just, you know, having to take a job to pay off your student loans and all that kind of stuff that uh, you're not as worried about, you know, paying for health care and all this kind of stuff that you aren't necessarily thinking about in your 20s because you think you're going to live forever and, you know, always have free time to just hang out with your friends and stuff. Um, I don't know. I just sound like a grumpy old man. That's it's fine. good. My life is richer now. I, I have this wonderful daughter and, you know, uh, things are good. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and telling people, sharing your wisdom and your experience. Oh, 
Have you ever noticed we don't have ads? It's true. I don't tell you about some gross shrimp scampi dish from Blue Apron. It's because we don't take ads right now. However, we do take tips. Please tip producer Chris. Chris Sutton does this out of the goodness of his heart, and he's expecting a baby. You can send Chris a tip by paypaling hornetleg at gmail.com and say tip Chris or something about the podcast. And then we'll thank you on the air. I'll sing your name if you want. Hornetleg, H-O-R-N-E-T-L-E-G at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. You keep the podcast free and ad-free. Adios. When I was 16 years old, I adopted a dog from a shelter in Kansas City, Kansas for my high school boyfriend. He couldn't keep her, so she ended up being mine, and her name was Beja Georges. All this month, I'm asking friends to share with me their recollections about Beja, in honor of my book, Fetch, How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home. Uh, For people that don't know, she was a beagle corgi charpe mix with really short legs and a long body and a kind of a scrunched, wrinkly face and corgi ears. Please enjoy the recollection from my friend Alec Longstreth about Beja Georges. Do you remember the first time you met Beja Georges? I absolutely do. Uh, Beja made quite an impression. Um, So I think this was uh, 2004 at the Portland Zine Symposium. It was the first uh, like comic convention that I had ever tabled at um, where I had actually like registered and gotten a table. And famously, uh, I shared a half table with our friend Nate Beatty, uh, who was like my first comics friend, and then through Nate, I met everybody. Um, and I, I, I don't know if he introduced me or I just started walking around the floor, but you were tabling as well, mm-hmm. and you had Beja with you uh, behind the table or something. Um, and I grew up with a dog. I had a golden retriever growing up named Sunday, and I love dogs. And so I was naturally drawn to your table because I saw Beja, and I was like, oh. And I did like a sort of like half step forward, lean down a little bit to like pet the dog. And you were like, she doesn't like men or something. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, I I remember kind of being like, eh, you know, like people always say that, but dogs love me. And then Beja like tried to bite me, um, (laughs) tried to bite my hand. It was like, and I I stepped back. I was like, whoa, whoa, okay. And you were like, had her on the leash. You were like, Beja, Beja, down, you know, whatever. And then I was like, oh, wow. I was like, I guess I'm not petting that dog or whatever. So then I started looking through your zines and, um, you know, we were, we were chatting or something. And then, uh, you noticed that I was wearing glasses that did not have lenses in them. <laughs> and you said, those, are those fake glasses? And I was like, oh yeah, uh, I just wear lenses. And you were like, you poser. And you yelled at me. Um, and, and I remember thinking, well, you know, strike two or whatever. <laughs> you know, I was like, not going to be a friendship for the ages, but I was wrong. You were you know? wrong. And I was here. We are whatever it is. Uh, I guess it's seventeen years, years later. Seventeen years, years four, later. Thirteen years what? later. Thirty. Thirteen years later. Thirteen years later, we're we're famous friends. You know, we're uh, thick as thieves and all that. And so I think uh, I never, I never really got to know Beja much better than that. I think that that initial uh, interaction is pretty similar to all the other interactions I had with Beja, but I think it's an important lesson to not always, you know, judge a book by its cover, and I'm, I know from reading your work that uh, Beja was uh, a very sweet dog and a, a good uh, partner for you for uh, comfort and, and all those things, so she was. I, I, I got to a point where I understood even though Beja is not uh, like quote-unquote nice to me in an outward way that she was the right dog for you. Uh, can you describe the way she looked? Um, yeah, she's sort of like a tan dog, 
and then sort of uh, I remember kind of like stumpy, kind of like short and sturdy. Like you know, it looked like you could hit the dog with like a car, and the car <laughs> bumper would just dent, you know. And she'd look up and be like, "Hey, back off!" And then sort of like mushy face with like some action there like i don't know like scars or something i don't know and then like kind of gnarly teeth that maybe stuck out a little bit i also just remember the other friend that i made that same time as aaron rainier who had a dog beluga and like sweet sweet beluga was just kind of like the the nicest sweetest like you know jump up in your lap let you pet him roll around dog um so i also just remember like i just met these two people they both have dogs, which was, like, so cool because we were in our 20s and it, like, never occurred to me that you could, like, own a dog as, like, just, like, a new adult or whatever. Um, and then those two dogs were in, like, very sharp contrast. So it was sort of like Beja was, like, the anti-Beluga or maybe Beluga was the anti-Beja. I think that Beja may have inspired Beluga. Yeah, like, Aaron saw you with Beja and was like, I'm going to get a dog. Yeah, he's like, that looks great. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.